This is episode 136 of the Dear Discreet Guide podcast. This episode is titled, Did Eyes of Darkness Predict COVID-19? This episode is, I believe, the fifth in our Sunday episodes about literary viruses. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. On February 15th of 2020, Nick Hinton posted a screenshot from Dean Kuntz's novel Eyes of Darkness on Twitter with the comment, a Dean Kuntz novel written in 1981 predicted the outcome of the coronavirus. And the screenshot that he included was an excerpt from the novel, which I'll read for you here. I'm not interested in the philosophy or morality of biological warfare, Tina said. Right now, I just want to know how the hell Danny wound up in a place like this. To understand that, Dombey said, you have to go back 20 months. It was around then that a Chinese scientist named Li Chen defected to the United States carrying a diskette record of China's most important and dangerous new biological weapon in a decade. They call the stuff... Wuhan 400, because it was developed at their RDNA labs outside the city of Wuhan, and it was the 400th viable strain of man-made microorganisms created at that research center. Wuhan 400 is a perfect weapon. It afflicts only human beings. No other living creature can carry it. And like syphilis, Wuhan 400 can't survive outside a living human body for longer than a minute, which means it can't permanently contaminate objects or entire places the way anthrax and other virulent microorganisms can. And when the host expires, the Wuhan 400 within him perishes a short while later, as soon as the temperature of the corpse drops below 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Do you see the advantage of all this? Tina was too busy with Danny to think about what Carl Dobby had said, but Elliot knew what the scientist meant. If I understand you, the Chinese could use Wuhan 400 to wipe out a city or country, and then there wouldn't be any need for them to conduct a tricky and expensive decontamination before they moved in and took over the conquered territory. Twitter erupted and did his thing about Dean Kuntz predicting the future, and there were the usual uh, insightful comments and replies from people, uh, one of whom says that that just proves that time travel exists, and other people were totally blasé and saying that, oh yeah, that just shows that all of future is already known. There was one confused person who wrote, wait, how could he have known about the coronavirus 40 years ago? And then another person said, it hasn't occurred to a single person that a terrorist would have used Kuntz's novel for inspiration. My personal favorite was Deplorable Mo, who says that CNN is saying that the book is a hoax and that no one could have predicted this virus. 
But she says, I saw a statement from Dr. Lee Chen about where this started and unfortunately is died from this virus. She's actually confusing Dr. Lee Chen with Dr. Lee Wen Liang, who unfortunately did die from the coronavirus in a terrible and tragic story that we'll save for another day. Somebody else on Twitter said, now he just needs to predict the antivirus. Good one. It raised such a ruckus that Snopes, the fact check website, had to get involved and they rated it mostly false. They said he didn't predict an outbreak of a new coronavirus, which actually it seems like he kind of did. But they go on to say other than the name, his fictional biological weapon had little in common with the virus that caused a real outbreak in 2020. (laughs) I kind of like the way they said that, like, oh, yawn, yeah, back in 2020, we had this outbreak. Uh, Also kind of weakening the great conspiracy is that Although the virus is named Wuhan 400 in the 1989 edition of Eyes of Darkness, it was actually called Gorky 400 in the 1981 edition, uh, where apparently it was created in some Russian lab. I want to tell the story of the book, partly because it's a fun story, but also to pay homage to Dean Kuntz's real skill in plot-making and in setting up kind of traditional tropes, but in new ways that keep us turning the pages. So in the book, Eyes of Darkness, Tina, whom we've already met, she's the mother of Danny. And her son uh, had been killed in a bus wreck. And she also divorced Danny's father, Michael, that year. And a year later, the words not dead, appear on a chalkboard in her son's room, a room that she has left pretty much untouched for the last year because being in grief, she's not been able to face the room. Creepy, right? Uh, She's actually in the process of directing a big show in Vegas at the time, her own career as a Uh, producer for big shows like this has kind of taken off, ironically. And at opening night, she meets Elliot Stryker. And I just have to read this for you so you get a sense of uh, how this kind of writing works. Even though her attention was partly on the mood of the crowd, Tina was nevertheless aware of Elliot Stryker's reaction to her. He made no great show, of being more than ordinarily interested in her, but the attraction she held for him was evident in his eyes. Beneath his cordial, witty, slightly cool exterior, his secret response was that of a healthy male animal, and her awareness of it was more instinctual than intellectual, like a mare's response to the stallion's first faint stirrings of desire. Okay. Now, while the show is going on, the cleaning lady encounters a poltergeist in Danny's room. Uh, And also, uh, the reader gets treated to kind of an omnipresent perspective uh, later on, where we see the room again being haunted by the poltergeist when no one is there, but it's also extremely creepy. All right, so still planning to pack his clothes, Tina goes back into the room. And the room is completely wrecked, right? This is what we saw when nobody else was there but us. Stuff is everywhere. Things are trashed. And again, not dead appears back on the chalkboard. Uh, So Tina suspects 
but it's her ex playing tricks on her. So she goes to see him. He turns out to be a blackjack dealer. And after a long uh, interaction with him, she becomes convinced that it wasn't him. Uh, She's working uh, in the hotel on her show, and the printer and computer start going crazy and not dead, keeps showing up in this list of names that she's trying to review. And not only that, then it Her printer kind of goes crazy and starts printing out, Danny alive, help, help, get me out, please, please. And then she sees uh, the vision of a man who's been haunting her nightmares that she's been suffering uh, ever since Danny's death. She tries to turn off the computer, but it keeps printing out, get me out, out, out. Finally, she unplugs it and is able to stop its uh, carrying on. Elliot suddenly appears, and so she tells him the story of the bus wreck and how Bill Jaborski took a group of 14 boys between the ages of 12 and 18 into the Sierra wilderness in a four-wheel drive minibus that was equipped with uh, snow tires and chains and even a snow plow on the front, but for some reason he went way off the main highway, off into the Sierra wilderness onto an abandoned logging trail, went off the road, the fuel tank exploded, and everyone died. So she and Elliot, um, jumping ahead here somewhat, uh, who is an attorney, decide to exhume Danny's grave so she can convince himself that he's actually dead because she actually never saw his body. So Elliot goes off to ask for a favor from a judge that he knows and is uh, back home cooking dinner for Tina because now they've already started their romance when two really weird guys walk into his kitchen. And he objects to their presence and they pull a gun and they begin this sort of strange uh, banter between them. One of them says, put the knife down and we'll all be happy. And the other guy says, let's keep this happy. The first one says, yeah, nice and happy. And Elliot thinks to himself, the Mad Hatter will be along any minute now. Uh, The bad guys pull out some medical equipment, including some hypodermic needles. They want to ask him some questions, but he fights back. Meanwhile, Tina is back packing up Danny's room and gets freaked out by a comic book cover of a horrible monster. And then as she goes in the closet, there's another cover of the dark man from her nightmare. Suddenly a guy from the gas company appears at her door and she lets him into the garage to check on the furnace. Elliot, back at his place, fights the two guys and knocks one of them out. And he's some kind of army intelligence guy. So, you know, apparently he has skills. And that's how attorneys are in Dean Kuntz's type books. Anyway, the other guy runs off. And Elliot searches the unconscious man's pockets, but he has no idea, which actually scares Elliot worse than anything because most bad guys, even bad guys, uh, carry uh, some kind of ID. He thinks he better go check on Tina, And meanwhile, Tina is back in Danny's room with the guy in the garage, and she's looking at comic books and finds one that has a story about, quote, the boy who was not dead. Meanwhile, the guy in the garage finishes, says everything's fine, and leaves. And Elliot shows up, freaked out, and uh, tells her that she has to pack a suitcase so they can run off. And then they realize that gas is, in fact, leaking from the garage, and they race out the front door. The house blows up, and somebody in a black van follows them. 
They hide in the garage of a very nice man named Tom, and they then have this kind of Marx brother routine where they're double-talking the nice man while they wait for the black van to go by so that they can escape. And eventually, they take off and say goodbye to Tom and go to eat at a diner, but not before Tina gets a prickly feeling. In the diner, they look at the questions that the two weird guys had printed out in order to interrogate Elliot, including questions about something called the Project Panda and some military research installations in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Mmm, the plot thickens. They speculate about a bunch of stuff and decide to go to Reno to talk to the mortician who took care of Danny's body, and Tina is filled with dread. Uh, They decide to fly because, of course, Elliot owns a Cessna and is a pilot. As they pay their bill, the jukebox gets stuck and starts repeating, not dead, not dead, not dead. Somebody calls out, shoot the piano player, but it gets louder and colder in the room. They manage eventually to unplug the jukebox, but not before Tina has an epiphany that the cries of help are from Danny. Who could have thought? She decides that Danny is alive and suddenly starts remembering all these psychic powers he had as a little kid. Meanwhile, back at the casino, a bad man named Brewster, gotta love these bad guy names, kills Michael by spraying poison up his nose. And the chapter ends, Brewster says, how could it be a heart attack, him being so young, Brewster wondered. Jesus, you just never know, do you? You never know, the guard agreed. The hotel doctor would call it a heart attack after he examined the body. So would the coroner. So would the death certificate. A perfect murder. Willis Bruxter suppressed a smile. (laughs) Then we're taken into Judge Kennebec's mind, the judge that Elliot went to go see and learn that indeed there is some evil cover-up afoot. And he reflects on that the network, capital N, so you know it's evil, could have swapped an old dead boy's body for the rocks that were currently in the casket, except that they got caught off guard because George Alexander, who's the chief of the Nevada Bureau of the Network, panicked, planned a suicide for Stryker, those two guys in the hypodermics apparently, an accidental death for Tina with the gas explosion, and a heart attack for the husband. Uh, So two of those things failed. And it bears mentioning that I'm sure you're not surprised that Kennebec, quote, has despised Alexander from the day they met, because Kennebec comes from a poor background, and Alexander was born with a silver spoon, and he's also a hypocrite. Also, Kennebec is a fascist. Okay, bad guys galore. Kennebec tells Alexander to go look for small planes, because he figures out that's probably what Elliot is doing. They call around and figure out that Elliot and Tina are headed to Reno, to find the mortician, and they set up a trap at the funeral home. And in Reno, Elliot and Tina get a rental car, and the lights and radio start behaving bizarrely, like the windshield wipers start working for no reason. And this makes Tina super happy because, obviously, it's just Danny saying hi. And the glove box pops out, and the ashtray slides out, and she just laughs with happiness. We're coming to get you, she calls out. Please don't hate me, but I'm going to stop there. We get whisked away to an underground bunker in the Sierra, and the rest of the story is just fun with more murders, escapes, super mad bad guys, more magic tricks, 
until eventually they find the research scientists. And there's a really heart-rending scene when Tina is reunited with Danny. Made me tear up. And then the excerpt that we started with plays out. Somebody on Twitter said, you know, when you're talking about somebody as prolific a writer as Dean Kuntz, the idea of prediction in his writing becomes a matter of monkeys and typewriters. So how prolific is he? Pretty prolific. He's published over 105 novels, a number of novellas, and collections of short stories. He sold over 450 million copies of his work, which just goes to show the attraction of this kind of writing and the pleasure that his readers take in it. Dean Kutz was born in 1945 in Pennsylvania. He majored in English at Shippensburg State College and went to work as an English teacher. His first novel, Star Quest, was published in 1968. In the 70s, he began writing under pen names, sometimes up to eight books per year. So he has the formula and he's cranking it out. His editors convinced him that writers who, quote, switched back and forth between different genres invariably fell victim to, quote, negative crossover, alienating established fans and simultaneously failing to pick up new ones. And so he uh, wrote under a bunch of different pen names. And in fact, Eyes of Darkness was originally published under the pen name of Lee Nichols. In the afterword to Eyes, uh, Kuntz explains that He has uh, really amused himself by thinking up terrible deaths for his pseudonyms, and here he admits that the recounting that he's given previously for the death of Lee Nichols by drinking too much champagne and being decapitated was, in fact, fictitious. In fact, he says, uh, Lee Nichols was abducted by aliens, underwent some terrible surgeries, and returned to Earth too traumatized to continue to be a novelist, but instead became the dictator of Iraq. Kunz goes on to say that he enjoyed revising eyes for the republication, uh, though he says he, quote, resisted the urge to transform the story entirely into a novel of the type that I would write today. I updated cultural and political references, polished away a few of the more egregious stylistic inadequacies, and trimmed excess wordage here and there. I enjoyed revisiting Eyes, which remains a basically simple tale that relies largely on plot and on the strangeness of the premise to engage the reader. He described it as, quote, one of my early attempts to write a cross-genre novel mixing action, suspense, romance, and a touch of the paranormal. Speaking of pen names and made-up deaths, there is one interesting side note that I'll mention here, and that is that there are some erotic novels ostensibly written by Kuntz and his wife of 50-some years. They've been married since 1966, I think. But he later stated that he didn't write them, though he mentioned in his book, How to Write Best-Selling Fiction, that in his early years, he wrote some goth romance and pornography and said anything to pay the bills. On his website, he said that his identity was stolen by a person he'd worked with professionally who submitted things under Kuntz's name. And Kuntz has said that he will reveal this person's name in his memoirs. So like his plots, we may think we have a pretty good idea of how it will turn out, but it turns out you have to read to the end to be sure you're right. 
Kuntz is nuts about golden retrievers and puts them in his books and all over Twitter. Even his uh, Wikipedia page talks about his dogs. He's a funny guy, there's no doubt. And uh, so on Twitter, he has an active account. And he says in there that golden retrievers are clowns, but not scary. And they love us as we're told God loves us. He says, which is why golden spelled backwards is Ned Log. <laughs> His personality uh, really does come out on Twitter. And he says, uh, kind of revealingly, that he likes reading something that entertains him first. He's currently promoting his new novel called Devoted. And he says on Twitter, if you're interested in learning more about the characters in Devoted, watch this video. If you aren't interested, why the hell not? And in another promotional tweet, he writes, this is a soft sell. For a hard sell, I bring a knife. He also has some serious tweets. He writes in one, carnivals like the one in Twilight Eyes are fading away, which is tragic, but not as tragic as the fact that I am fading away. I think he's 75. He also says with regards to his novels that he does try and talk about community. And so he says, yeah, we're living in pretty dark times, but as long as human beings pull for one another, we'll get through everything. And finally, one last hurrah from Twitter. Somebody put on Twitter that the thriller Eyes of Darkness was used to create the hoax. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.